Hi, this is Ben Bova. I've written a lot of science fiction, and I think that I've devoted my life to trying to understand the opportunities and the dangers of the future. And if you listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, you'll begin to understand a lot of that, too. Computer, status report. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. No! Good evening, everybody. It is TalkCast 88, and tonight we are celebrating the return of Spider Robinson on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, and we're getting a huge echo that we haven't gotten all night long for the past half hour. Uh, deep in Area 51, I am the Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight in the Alston Brighton Bunker, welcome Kriana and Zombrarian. It's a bunker? It's not it's going to a... be the Alston Brighton bunker for very long. Okay. <laughs> yes, it'll be moving shortly. To to possibly revere. Possibly. And what will we call it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll work on that one. Bell Tower. <laughs> Bell Tower. <laughs> From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, Illustrator X. Technology, you will be my bitch. Good luck with that. <laughs> And his, <laughs> and his blushing bride, the dead redhead. It's never gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your support. <laughs> from Outpost Gallifrey in Indiana, risen from the dead, it's Captain Segway himself, awake by Java. You know, X, you really just need to give up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> never! <laughs> Uh, tonight, we welcome bon vivant writer, musician, and man about town, and friend of all of ours, Spider Robinson. Spider, great to have you back. Hello, friends and neighbors in the audio radiance. I am Spider Robinson, the James Taylor of the Stone Age, coming to you from the home of the terminally confused, Sci-Fi Saturday Night. <laughs> and Spider is with us for the whole hour tonight, and... I don't know what the hell we're going to talk about, and I don't care what we're going to talk about. We're just going to sit and talk. But okay. we're going to <laughs> we're going to start because Java spent the weekend at uh, Summit, Summit City Comic Con. Yeah, Ooh. and you know what? It is a great little con. It's my first time being there. Um, Summit City is is the name for Fort Wayne that people who don't want to admit that they're from Fort Wayne. Uh, <laughs> And that uh, what it is. Yeah. They, they must be very proud of you right now. I don't know what it in Indiana. I don't know that there is much of a summit of anything, <laughs> except, for, except for possibly despair. So, uh, but the the Summit City Comic Con is a great little show. Uh, very local, very small, and um, the guys over at Digital or I'm sorry, Discount Comic Book Service do a great job. Um, I saw a bunch of fantastic artists. I got to see Chad Ciccone and uh, Mike Morecci and a whole bunch of other uh, friends from the show and oh, meet a whole cool. bunch of new people, nice. too. Yeah, they were great. Um, and some new people that you should definitely check out. I talked to 
uh, Jeremy McFerrin from Red Rocket Comics, and he's a great artist. And another fantastic guy, Ryan Brown, over at GodHatesAstronauts.com. <laughs> what a great URL. <laughs> Um, and I, I got to meet the guys over at Four Star Studios who are do, doing some great digital comic book distribution stuff. Um, and I hope we hope to have them on the show sometime soon. And a bunch of other really great artists and writers. Um, so if, you, if you're in the area next year, about the same time, you should definitely check it out. We hope, we'll hopefully have a presence there next year. Sounds like a plan. That's, it sounds like you had a good time. We'll talk more about that next week. What do you say? Absolutely. Awesome. We are one man table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's how we started out. Remember, we started out like, you know, that one guy. No, that, it was pretty much always you and me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It was at the very first Granite Con we went to. I'll we see how many computers that I can get and we can have you. <laughs> Virtual sci fi Saturday Night Con presence. That would there be awesome. Go. We can do that. We can, just bring your iPad. We'll be cool with that. So, ladies and gentlemen, from somewhere out in Canada, having spent the day on parliamentary television, Spider Robinson. <laughs> very strange, very strange. There's a wonderful man named Ken Rockburn who does a, an, an, an interview show to fill in the gaps between large blocks of parliament, which is to say watching paint dry. You know, <laughs> It's <laughs> guys, kind of guys, like C-SPAN 3. Yeah, yeah, people sitting in a room and fighting to see which one can fall asleep fastest. And every so often, this guy, Ken Rockburn, will come out and he'll interview somebody like Randy Bachman or Ralph Nader. He had a wonderful interview with him, which he dismantled the man beautifully. Uh, Paul Haggis, he's just, you know, anybody he happens to be interested in, he'll interview. And uh, things are so bad in Canada, now they've gotten down to me. And today they came over here and did a taped a, about an hour interview to be put on in between politicians. So uh, I may acquire a whole new audience of zombies. Maybe I should start writing horror films. <laughs> Yay, so, zombies. So what did you talk about? What, 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 what were the parliamentary people interested in? Everything under the sun. The man happens to be an expert in about 18 different kinds of music that I love, like jazz and folk and you know blues. And uh, he spent a lot of time at a, a famous uh, a coffee house in, in Ottawa called Ibu, where everybody in the world played there. You know, uh, Dan Aykroyd reminisces about the time he backed up Muddy Waters on drums there, man. You know, uh, wow. pretty much everybody's played there. Lenny Bro and Amos Garrett and, and you know, the, the greats. And uh, he's in the process of researching a, a documentary he wants to do about this incredible, legendary, seminal, influential club that's been around since the 60s and launched a lot of careers, you know. So, in other words, I was expecting a kind of a dry, what, what you get off the parliamentary channel. And what I got was this really hip cat who just happens to also be interested in the levers of power and the idiots that put their hands on them, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, too, have, you know, if I could do it the way he does, like going to the zoo, you know, where I didn't ever actually get into, get into the cage with them, uh, you know, I've always, I'm always fascinated by the kind of people who want that sort of power badly enough to go through the indignities and humiliations required to get it. And then there's the Anthony Wieners of the world. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, clearly there's something wrong with these people, and I'm fascinated to know what it is. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny because Drew, who's who's one of our segment producers, is getting her degree in political science, but she's also uh, minoring in acting because, as far as she's concerned, they're so well tied together, they might as well be the same thing. Yeah, 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 pretty much the same. <laughs> Another thing we ended up talking about was the, the, uh, the, the bizarreness of causes of violence. I, I was talking, for instance, about how I have a friend who divides his time. Half the year he lives here in Vancouver area, and the other half the year he lives in the Greek islands. He's got a nice home on Icaros. And this particular trip, for uh, assorted reasons, he and his wife decided before they went home to Icaros, they would stop for a nice week of vacationing and shopping in Athens. So I had just finished sending him an email breaking his balls on his bad <laughs> timing, you know, in picking the worst possible moment to fly into Athens for a little bit of fun and light entertainment. Oh, and my Lord. <laughs> ten minutes after I sent the email off, Vancouver exploded behind me as the Canucks lost the goddamn Stanley Cup. <laughs> oh, yes! Right? Twice as bad, twice as many police cars were set on fire. And, you know, so we were talking about the fact that, you know, if you want to get real civil rage, if you really want people on the streets to go nuts and act like savage animals, the proximate cause must be something as utterly meaningless as possible. You know, like ideally sports. something like a sports like event. Like politics. <laughs> I yeah. was going to say, speaking of utterly meaningless, didn't we just kick your guys' butt at hockey or something? Yeah. I feel obligated to mention it as a resident of said city. There you go. That's there right. you go. Now I feel dirty. People seem to get crazy. The Bruins are the best basketball team to ever play. Oh. Spoken like an amazingly confused fan. Well played. They really know how to dunk those hockey pucks. I just, the sports gene got left out of me at birth, you know? There's a t shirt you can get from theonion.com. That reads something to the effect of the sports organization sponsored by my community can defeat the sports organization sponsored by your community. <laughs> you know, that's as involved as I can ever get about it. I, I don't know any of these guys. None of them are from here. You know, I never met any of them. They ain't work, fighting for me. They're fighting for their paycheck. And why am I supposed to cheer and go nuts and despair when they lose? And, uh, you know what? You're not. As, as long as you don't walk through Boston with a Yankees hat on, you're you're probably you're fine. <laughs> I, I spent most of my life believing that I'm a Martian changeling left here by you know <laughs> some, some sort of oversight like ET. You know, and uh, sports was one of my early examples. You know, I I just didn't understand it. Everyone else seemed to react to that raw nerve. You know, at, at the slightest touch. And me, you could whack me on the sports nerve, and I just didn't care, you know. And I, I played sports. I was a kid. You had to play sports. They made you play sports, and I still didn't care whether my team beat the other team, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I kind of enjoyed being out in the sunshine and being allowed to run around, you know, and have a game with a complicated set of rules. But who the hell cared whether you won it or lost it? It was all. Well, somebody else cared. We didn't. That was the beauty yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Other people care passionately. I'll, I'll never understand why, God bless them. Similarly, uh, I, I, all during my childhood, I, I was in a lot of fights. Invariably, someone else instigated the fight, and invariably, I lost the fight. And perhaps understandably, I didn't really much get the point of this exercise either. You know, Everyone seemed to enjoy it an awful lot. I didn't find it fun until one day... I was about, I'm, I'm going to guess here, 13, 14 years old, that range. 
And once again, I found myself in the middle of a fight with some total stranger who had insisted on provoking a fight for reasons known only to him. Only this time, in the middle of the fight, like the skies lit up and beams of sunlight came down from heaven. And this revelation came to me. I suddenly realized, I think I can take this fool. <laughs> this man has made a grave mistake. He has overmatched himself. He's, I, I, I think I can actually, wow, this is great. Now I'm going to get to learn the good part. Now I'll find out what's so much fun about this fighting thing that everybody loves doing it. Yes, sir. And I waited in there and I beat the crap out of this kid. And when I was done, I felt twice as bad as I had when I got beat up. The result was exactly the same. There was somebody there on his knees in blood and spit and shame and tears. Only I was the asshole responsible, you know? <laughs> and it didn't make me feel any better at all. I felt like twice as much of a jerk. So uh, that it was on that day, I think, that I concluded I'm, I'm not, in fact, a human being. I'm some sort of you know, a alien uh, changeling left here for what purpose I know not. And I'm hoping that one day soon my instructions will kick in, you know? Uh, I don't know. I think the instructions are right there. I think, you know, you've led that kind of a, 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 a slightly sideways life that's allowed you to produce music, to produce great works of fiction, and to just enjoy the ride. This is true. Georgia Jungle have secret weapon. Dumb luck. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know we... It's funny because Ben Bova was on the show uh, about two or three weeks back. There's some of my dumb luck right there. Ben Bova, dumb luck number one. And, and Ben Bova <laughs> did the same thing because he, we we were doing an Isaac Asimov retrospect and we were talking about how he first met Asimov and the dumb luck involved. He was in the phone book. Uh, and he looked uh, him up. Uh, that's but Isaac. You know what, though? Not dumb luck, because we do the same thing every day. How do you think we got Spider on the show? I looked him up on the internet. That's very yeah. true. That's yeah. very true. It's true. the modern phone book, kiddos. Yeah. Now, admittedly, I, I you know, it's, it's got a couple of layers of filtration on it, and I tend to, I tend to get mail from that source about oh, once every month or two, you know, unless I'm a little lazy, in which case it can be three or four months, uh, you know. <laughs> But nonetheless, yeah, it, it is possible to get a hold of your heroes. I was one of the first things I figured out when the internet finally appeared was, my God, I can actually contact some people that I've admired all my life and tell them how much their work has meant to me when I never thought I'd get a chance, you know. But now here's this website, and they gave me an email address, and they're asking me from a false son of a bitch. And I tried to go down the list of all my heroes. You know, and make sure before they left the planet that I told them how what what their work had meant to me. And I didn't always make it. You know, in some cases I was a little late. You know, and I got there just just wrong. But sometimes uh, the timing was perfect. I I wrote to Fritz Richmond, a musician I really love. Fritz Rich, Richmond used to play washtub bass in Jim Quiskin's Jug Band, and a bunch of other. Oh jug gosh, yes, I know exactly uh, who you're talking uh, about. Uh, Richard Farina, the great Richard Farina, died, fell off the back of Fritz Richmond's motorcycle back oh. in the day. And I wrote to Fritz, and I just had to tell him how much his good time music concept had meant to me and how in writing I had always tried to do the writing equivalent of good time music, of never leaving anybody feeling shittier than when they picked up my book, you know. And I got back this wonderful email from his wife saying, Fritz hasn't got the strength to do any typing himself. He's in the process of dying. 
but he just wanted me to tell you how he, how much he really appreciated your letter. He'd always always wanted to get a letter like that, and he never had. And you know, congratulations, you got it just under the wire. And two days later, Fritz left. You know. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And, and, no, but you know. that's a that's a win. That's an ultimate yeah. win. It really is because you got to do. You got to say something right out of the top of your heart. Well, I and hate. He, and, and I he hate got when to somebody dies and I'm boiling over with tribute. Mm-hmm. And but it's a, you know it's a little late to tell the person who would most appreciate hearing this. Uh, we we did a thing in Toronto for Judith Merrill before she left. Uh, the 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 spaced out library did a thing where we all eulogized Judith while she was still around to appreciate it before she was uh, existence challenged. That's and awesome. It was just terrific. A whole bunch of you know Michael Moorcock and Fred Pohl. And, you know, we just had a great time. We sat around and told told Judith stories and told people how remarkable she was while she got to sit there and preen and deny some of the charges. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and mitigating circumstances to some of the others. You know, there ought to be more of that shit going on. There really should. Well, Spider, you know, I wish I'd... I wish I'd... Your work. <laughs> I wish I'd written to Robert Parker. That, that's somebody I always meant to write a fan letter to, but I just, I always thought, well, there'll be plenty of time. And then, well, you know, one day his wife found him literally face down on the typewriter. And, yeah, but uh, that's the way he would want it to go. That's know? probably the way he would have wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, you know he's he's a, a, an underrated writer. I've I, you know I've always enjoyed his books, even if the the times they tended to be a little sort of bite sized. You know, ain't nothing in the world wrong with that, man. You know, ain't nothing in the world wrong with that. So Bova was talking to us about how what it was that Asimov did for him early on, and you had mentioned that. Bova did about the same for you. A similar thing. He and and Isaac, incidentally, um, at when I when I sold that first story to uh, Analog Magazine, dumb luck again. George of Jungles, dumb luck. I sell a, my first submission to Analog. Uh, at the time, I was working as a real estate editor for a newspaper out on Long Island. There was a, a businessman's daily. It uh, landed on the captains of uh, on the desk of captains of industry. You had to make like you know fifty thousand a year or and up just to be considered to be on our subscription list. And I put out a weekly real real estate supplement uh, that was absolute bullshit. Uh, basically, I was lying for a living with a typewriter. <laughs> I sold this first story to Analog Magazine. And that was very nice, but but Ben paid me at Analog's rates, and it came to a whopping four hundred dollars. And you know I could make that in a in a week on the on the p- paper churning out bullshit, and then at the end of a year, my editor on the paper uh, offered to double my salary, which was already ridiculously high by my hippie standards. Uh, it would have you know I would have been up into some serious money if I was willing to like throw myself into the job full time. He said I, I I quite realize you're putting out your real estate weekly supplement in about two hours a week. And the rest of the time, you're coasting in the library, pretending to be researching. And uh, you know, but if you'll if you'll become a full-time real estate guy and join the Long Island Board of Realtors and go to their social events and get to know them and join their clubs and and buy the you know hundred-dollar plate at the plate hundred-dollar plate dinner and all that crap, I'll double your salary, which would have been like you know king's ransom in in today's dollars. And I asked the advice of everybody I knew, but everybody I knew was a raggy ass hippie like me 
uh, except Ben. <laughs> ben was the only guy I knew who was knocking down some pretty serious change and had a job with great seriousness and responsibility. And I called him up and explained the situation and said, you know, basically, they're paying me a fortune to sell out and write this horrible crap. And after I'd sold that one story to Ben, every other story I wrote bounced at every other market in the business. I, 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 I bounced about 13 stories in 13 different markets. And I was beginning to despair of ever having a second sale. And I said to Ben, you know, what do you think I should do? I mean, this is this is financial security, and I could I could write on the side. And Ben said, let me get back to you. And I said, well, I got to make a decision by Monday. He said, fine. Sunday night, he called up, and he said, I've I've talked about your problem with everybody who walked into the analog office. I talked about it with Paul Anderson. I talked about it with Isaac Asimov. I talked about it with Keith Lawmer. We're we're all pretty unanimous. Uh, we we all uh, they all everybody said to tell you nobody can pay you enough money to do something you really don't want to do. And I thanked him and them very kindly. And I quit my job on the newspaper and I went full time freelance. And if it hadn't been for that, I'd I'd still be a guy who published a story once every three or four years. You know, it was these the 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 the, the encouragement and the inspiration that I got from guys like Ben and Isaac and and Poole and you know gentlemen all that that I got into this field full time with both feet. When I can when I came along, science fiction was going through this golden period where there was no slightest trace of competitiveness to be found anywhere. People went out of their way to help the new guy aboard, to you know, lend a helping hand to the new kids coming up. Because it wasn't like that we were having a contest to see who could pick the most potatoes. It was like we we gotta get all these potatoes in before the rains come. The more hands the better, you know? This was before Star Wars. When, when Star Wars came from, suddenly it began to seem like there was a buck in this, and then all of a sudden the knives came out. You know, and all of a sudden it got a lot less friendly and a lot, you know, a little more, a little more on the competitive side. And, and to my mind, nowhere near as much fun. But for a while, it was a community of gentlemen, you know, looking for people to help get the word out because that's what we were in science fiction for was to get the word out. You know talk to civilians and get them excited about shit like space travel and star travel and you know mm. wake them up man wake them up spider about last time you were on the show uh about a month before when kriana had finally made contact with you and we had set up the date and everything uh one of the coolest things for me was to loan a, a bunch of my books to x and the dead redhead <laughs> so that they could start reading uh, Callahan's cross time saloon stories. And we're addicted. Oh, I, cool. got, I got those loners at 12. Oh, cool. It so, sounds like you guys share my weakness. I, I the, the most fun I can have out of bed is to turn people on to good stuff. They don't know yet. Well, this, uh, this is what we do. Well, this is what, this is the whole point of this damn podcast yeah, is that yeah. there are people out there who never heard of you. There are people out here who have never, you know, heard of Callahan's Cross Time Saloon. Okay, so, can I just mention a couple of them for a minute? Go ahead. I, I believe our two lovelies in the chat room, uh, who are also our two new blogger loves, um, had never heard of Spider before they began listening to us. 
But I, that's I, absolutely I, fine. There's, you know, there's no time limit. You know, you're ne- you can't be late. It's not like you know so you've missed something. The books are all just sitting there in in, in in hyperspace somewhere, waiting for folks to find them whenever. You know, there's there's a lot of really good writers that I'm just catching up with now that I you know was told about 20 years ago, but I just never got around to it. You know, and that's all right. They're still there, and they didn't get any worse. Uh, you know. No, as a matter of fact, I got to tell you, they got better. Yeah, so, yeah, but absolutely. I, I mean, like, also, Zomburian, I, I got her into Lady Callahan uh, in college. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that line alone. Not only that, la- I last know, time. This, for- is, this is the purpose of, of our show, and I think that we're slowly but surely building up the audience to fulfill it, which is we like some really cool stuff. And we just, we just can't help but yeah. share. And now these these two guys sitting in this chat room right now with me, um, who had never heard of your work before they started listening to our show and weren't even around when we did that first show, but That's heard right. us talking about it on subsequent shows and went back and listened to it, and then went back and read the books. I, I talked with one of them yesterday? yesterday, and I was like, so, are you excited for Spider tomorrow? And he was like, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you deny it. Yeah. So my question and, to you is, in that very first short story, uh, uh, Callahan's Cross Time Saloon. Where, where, how did, how did that happen? How did, where did that come from? All right. Well, to to to, to answer this, I gotta go back to uh, my escape from college. Uh, oh, by the play. way, for, for anybody who's listening out there and can hear the guitar, Lady Macbeth is also with us tonight. That's right. That is that is Lady Macbeth herself with new strings and all. Uh, Lady Macbeth, those of you who don't know her, is a Gibson J45 vintage about 1956, I believe. She has a much better guitar than I deserve. And I will be noodling <laughs> on it from time to time. Anyway, there, it took me seven years, but there finally came a day when I escaped college. I, I, I was able to make good my escape with a bachelor's degree in English, ran out of the streets clutching this bachelor's degree in English, and suddenly realized, oh, my God, I don't want to drive a cab. <laughs> That's well, what science majors think about English majors. Well, you know, there, there you go. Well, there's really only one other occupation left if you're an English major and you don't want to drive a cab, other than being an English teacher. And I, I, I just didn't have the stomach for that. Uh, the only other occupation left for you is night watchman, and so I got <laughs> jobs as a night watchman, and uh, promptly was hired to guard a sewer to prevent its theft. Um, the, the, <laughs> what? problem well i know this is ridiculous this was the babylon new york they were constructing a sewer and the law stated that any county construction project required a watchman and so i spent nine months watching a hole in the ground to make sure no one made off with it Uh, it actually got interesting once very briefly toward the end of the project they brought in laser beams to sight the pipe you know the, the idea being you fire the laser down the pipe and if it don't come out the other end somebody fucked up and uh, for a couple of nights there, I had to actually seriously keep watch over the laser because every kid in the neighborhood wanted to be able to say he fired the laser beam. But uh, mostly the job involved sitting around in a construction trailer with my feet up uh, reading a paperback book. And one night I was doing so. I, I had in my hands a science fiction paperback. I've mercifully forgotten the author's name and title. 
uh, or, or I believe me, I'd be happy to rake them over the coals. Whoever it was was just awful. And I flung the book across the trailer and said for the 10,000th time in my life, as I'm sure you must have yourself, I could write better than that jackass. And a light bulb appeared in the air over my head. I'm, I was all alone. I had nothing else to do for the rest of the night. I hadn't brought a backup book. I would be bored out of my mind if I just sat there. Uh, right next to me on the desk was a typewriter. And next to that was a stack of paper, which if I just turned it over so it didn't say J.D. Pasilico Construction Company on the top, it looked like <laughs> blank manuscript paper. And to keep from going insane with boredom, I pecked out a little story about this imaginary bar where I'd rather be, where they would let you smash your glass in the fireplace. Holy now, why shit. this was, this is really weird. Is that the night before, I had seen on TV an old Charles Boyer Claudette Colbert movie in which they were exiled Russian nobility. They, after the revolution, they had to flee, and they're now, they've taken a job, they'll keep body and soul together, they've taken a job as butler and maid to a British couple of aristocrats who are, by comparison, classless, tasteless boobs. But nonetheless, they serve them faithfully and straighten out their lives for them like Jeeves does for Wooster every day, but then every night... After those idiots have gone to bed, they go downstairs to the servants' quarters and they stoke up the fire and they dress in all their Romanov finery and they drink champagne and, and then they smash oh. their glasses in the fireplace. And I just thought, man, how cool is that? How cool it would be if you knew a bar where you could do that, where you're allowed to smash your glass in the fireplace if you felt the need to. Boy, you know, I bet some interesting stories that end up getting told there. And the next thing I knew, Callahan's place just sort of grew like a mushroom. And... By dawn, I had a pile of stained paper with ink stains all over And, and I, I looked at it and said, you know, by God, if you didn't know better, you'd, you'd think that was a manuscript like writers produce. It looks just like one, you know. And uh, maybe, maybe if I sent it off to magazines, I could get one of them to take it seriously enough to send me a rejection slip, and then I could get women. <laughs> yeah, Is that how that what it all comes down to? I'd be a Son tragic of a picture bitch. of a man. That the misunderstood artist, you know, the, he's the genius, but they can't nobody can't get anybody to buy it. And I, I figured I could milk that one for at least a couple of summers. And so I, I went down to the library to find out who the hell paid money for this crap. And uh, back in those days, as I assume nowadays, Analog Magazine led all the list. I, I figured they'd have the classiest looking rejection slips. So I mailed off my manuscript to Ben Bova, and Ben sent back a check for four hundred dollars and an invitation to lunch. That kind of backfired, huh? Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> I, I came in for lunch, and the first thing he said was, tell me, does that Callahan's place really exist? I'd love to go there. And I <laughs> thought, shit, I'm into something. An editor has just told me he wants a series, you know? Wow. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, having read one or, or, or a series of, of those stories and books, that place has really got to be somewhere. It's got to be. It has to. It needs to be. And I, I keep telling them, it I, is. It's in your head. That's right. I get letters all the time from people who tell me they found it. And they're convinced that they found the place I mean. <laughs> and it's a wildly disparate location. And you know, none of them that I've ever heard of or been to in my life. And yet, from their descriptions, it sounds like that's day they found it all right. No, that's the, that's, that's the place all right. Did you ever go to any of them, Spider? I've I've gone to a couple of the, the online ones, you know. 
for a while there was a Usenet chat group, and then there was an IRC chat thing going Yeah, there on. was. Callahan's. Yes, there was. I, I was in and out of there a lot. Wow. They, they, you I, never they, knew how to use IRC, you liar. I was in Usenet. Oh, okay. Totally was. <laughs> there was You're a right. short while there, not very long, but there was a short while when I was told that the uh, the you know Callahan all Callahan's and related groups together constituted the one of the, one of the largest non-porn uh, gr chat groups in, in, in cyberspace. Wow! You no, know, you know, back when I used to play Second Life a lot, there there was a Callahan's in Second Life. Yeah, yes, I've been told there's one there too. I have tended nice. to approach these with great trepidation. Uh, this way lies bankruptcy. You know, <laughs> I, I sense a drug perfectly shaped to fit my endorphin receptors, and I know my propensity for absurd addictive behavior to the point of bankruptcy, and I don't know if I can afford one more expensive vice. And, well, you know, well. I, how, would I, if, how would I just dip my toe in that and not get sucked in? Come on, you know? You, you start that shit. You, you've created a family, and people and people start sharing their joy and their pain. And it's not something you can just kind of, you know, drop in on and be a, 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 a weekend visitor. And I just, you know, there's there's only so many lives I can live this lifetime. Have you all started to notice the phenomenon I'm running into that I, I'm just I'm missing everything? I've got I've got more music downloaded around here. And backed up on the CD and waiting for me to get a chance to listen to it. Music I know for a fact I'm going to love, but there's more of it than I could listen to if I did nothing else 24-7 for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. much TV and movies and books. You know, there's a stack of books here next to the bed that it's going to take me like 10 years to get to. Only stuff keeps ending up on the top of the pile. And... I know there's too much. I know I don't need any more. But then when Thomas Perry publishes a new novel, what am I supposed to do? Pretend I didn't know about it? Not get it? How, you know, whether I have to read it or not. It's a new Thomas Perry novel, for God's sake. It's treasure. The knitters have a term for that sort of thing, but it, it's sort of judging an accumulation of yarn rather than movies or books or TV shows or... Well, we're we're just drowning in stuff, you know. We're, we're that the means of production have passed into the hands of the people, and guess what? The people is productive little motherfuckers. You know? <laughs> so, so the term is the term is sable, which means what does it mean? Stash acquisition beyond life expectancy. There you go. There you go. See if we can just get ourselves digitized and uploaded, start living at computer speeds, we'll be able to keep up with all this shit. You see, we'll actually be able to surf the BitTorrent sites and experience it, experience it all. I, I got a, I got an iPod now with 150 gigabytes of music on it. Tell tell me when in my lifetime am I gonna have you know, be able to listen to even once 150 gigabytes of music? Never. I have a happy memory of a time in my youth when I was hospitalized for a long time. I was in a hospital for almost a month, and during that time, I caused to be brought to me a turntable and a pair of headphones, and I listened to Wagner's entire ring cycle from start to finish in one glorious sweep. And that was wonderful, and I'd love to do it again someday, but I just know I'm never going to have that much spare time in my life again, you know? Hey, Spider. Even, yeah, even if I get hospitalized, I still got other shit packed up I'll have to get to before <laughs> I go through Wagner again. You know? Here's some music that you should get to. Have you ever heard of Jake Shimabukuro? Yes, yes. He's wonderful. He's oh, wonderful. my God. He blows me the 
fuck away. Absolutely. George Harrison would have adored him, man. I, I saw a documentary in which George's son, Danny, said that whenever George was traveling, he would always carry two ukuleles in his carry-on luggage, just in case he met another uke player who wanted to jam. For those of you who don't know who Jake Shimabaruku is, he is a ukulele... Uh, Virtuoso. Virtuoso, thank you. Warlock. Yes. Is he the one that did the, the Somewhere Over the Rainbow? No, he did Bohemian Rhapsody on the ukulele, and it is to wow. die for. And his, his version of While My Guitar oh. Gently Weeps. Oh, my God, yes. Gently Weeps is awesome. I'm Seriously, George would have loved it. You're absolutely right. I mean, but it's, that's one of the things where so, I, I was at work the other day, and somebody passed me the, the CD and said, you've got to hear this. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't have the freaking time. My God, I've got 15 books backed up on my iPod. Never mind 10 more sitting. Uh, and I picked up another two today. And yeah. God, where, where, where does it go? How do we do this? I'm overloaded. And yeah. you know what? You know what the worst part is? I walked past my, my bookshelf this morning knowing you were going to be on tonight and pulled Lady Slings the Booze off <laughs> and put it next to my bed because huh? I adore it so much. Oh, thank you, man. That's nice to hear. And it's time for a reread, you know? That that, that title was Genie's. I, I, I didn't have the nerve for that one. Genie came up with Lady Slings the Booze. I, I, I have to hand that to her. <laughs> she did a lot of good things for me, man. And that was, that was one, only one of them. Oh, Jeannie did a lot of good things for a lot of people, my friend. I, I you know, I, I, I've been keeping a, a folder of all the emails that come in about Jeannie since she had to leave, and it was now up to six thousand emails. Wow, people have sent, and and if I that I can't tell you how warming and comforting and 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 healing they are. This is this is the sharing pain business that I was talking about. When you share pain, there's less of it. They've they've helped enormously, and it, if I had to distill the six thousand down to like a, a specimen typical email, it would be something like, "Hi, Mister Robinson, you probably won't remember me. You signed an autograph for me in East Weewaw, Wisconsin, back in nineteen ninety three, uh, but that's not why I'm writing. I'm writing to tell you that while I was online to get that autograph, I was like one hundred eighty seventh. In, in line to get that autograph and your wife looked up from the autograph table her eyes just brushed across mine for a second and she jumped up from the table and she ran across the room pushed her way through the crowd came up put her hands on my shoulders looked me in the eye and said what's wrong what's the matter come come over here and tell me about it sit down what's wrong man you're in pain and she got me to talk about what, what was what was wrong and you know she she helped me sort through it and she gave me some tools to handle it and then when we were done talking and she gave me all of her kleenex she brought me up to the front of the line and made sure that i got a really good autograph from you and i just wanted you to know i've never forgotten your wife and i never will and wow. you know email after email like this came in now see here's the weird part is if you'd ask Jeannie. Like what she was proudest of in her whole dance career, she would have said the time that she was invited to New York to dance in Beverly Brown's dance company because Beverly Brown, Beverly Brown was his, you know, accepted New York choreographer. The the dance press knew her, you know, the Times reviewer like came, went to see all of her new seasons, and she had all the grant money, you know, and she had a fabulous studio on Broadway. 
a, a studio loft space on Broadway. I mean, you know, and Jeannie was so thrilled to be invited to perform with her company. And Beverly even came up to Halifax where Jeannie's company was and laid some choreography on Jeannie's little, you know, Maritimes Dance Company. And she, that just thrilled her. Her favorite dance photo of herself was her on stage with Beverly and stuff. So anyway, after Jeannie had to leave the party, I, it occurred to me, I ought to drop a line to old Beverly and let her know Jeannie's checked out. No, uh, she'd be interested to know. I'll just tell her how much she always meant to Jeannie. And I went hunting her up on the internet and I could find only one reference to her anywhere with Google. That, uh, a mention that in 2002, she died of a stroke somewhere out in the Midwest. Nobody out there had any idea who the hell she was. Um, wow, that's nice. No, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, you. You can get the full one later, but I didn't want to kill the conversation. I was just no. played underneath. Thank you very much. I appreciate that so much. Spider, let me ask yes. you a question. Uh, I know that right up until Jeannie checked out, she was working on her movie. Yeah. What's, hap yeah. what's happening with that? The screenplay has finally been completed. Her partner and producer, Jim Spasto, and his partner, uh, David Gerald. Uh, God bless him, author of the famous Trouble with Tribbles of Star course, Trek. Yes. His first professional sale back in the day. Uh, they, they completed the screenplay. Jeannie had seen about 80% of the screenplay before she had to leave the party and pronounced herself terribly pleased with it. I think they pulled off a thrilling ending. It's now being shopped around. You know, I, I don't understand that process at all. But it, it's you know being put in the hands of guys who say they can get it in front of somebody who's sure that he can put it in front of the eyeballs of, and names are being tossed around. The last I heard, they were trying to get Darren Aronofsky, the guy that just did Black Swan, mm -hmm. which is interesting because Jeannie uh, really liked Darren Aronofsky, and he was sort of one of her dream directors for this project. So I, I hope that actually works out. She she would she would have been pleased by that. Oh, she will be pleased by it. Though I don't tell you the truth, I don't honestly think she would have liked Black Swan a whole lot. But <laughs> it, 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 but it does, on the other hand, definitely make clear that the man can do a dance movie. You know, which was her only concern. What she she loved uh, 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 the Fountain. Uh, mm -hmm. That film of his, she just flipped for the fountain. She felt that there was a lot of stuff in there that was stuff she wanted to say with Stardance, and she felt like he already got it, you know. And to know that he could handle dance too would have greatly pleased her. So let's hope that somebody's right. And you know, everything you hear in Hollywood is bullshit. You know, there's a, a book William Goldman wrote about the the industry called "Which Lie Did I Tell." <laughs> 
you know, so who knows? But uh, David and Jim Spasto are in the process of shopping it around and trying to get it seen by somebody with a big checkbook, you know, and or somebody who knows uh, a director or a star or one of the marketable elements necessary to get anything off the ground these days. You know, it's it's it's. It's so strange the way the world is going. For the last several years, I've noticed all of the quality coming in television and hardly any in the movies, you know? Mm. The, the movies, every movie is like a $200 million shot, you know? I mean, but the only people who are going to risk tons and tons and tons of money like that are people with as little imagination as possible, you know, aiming for the lowest common denominator and you know, shooting for the fences every time. And meanwhile, on, on cable, there, there's some cutting-edge storytelling that you know, beats anything they're doing in the movies. I'm a major fan it's of like Tremaine. AMC. And if you've yeah, seen yeah. X-Men First Class, you know that's true. Yep, Breaking Bad. You know, <laughs> Breaking Bad, man. I, just, I, I love everything about that show. I, I, I was a major, major ad- worshiper of The Wire. I've probably seen The Wire four yeah. times. I'll watch it again. Uh, and the, the the show by the same gang, uh, David Simon and friends, are now doing a show called Treme, which is just wonderful. It's about New Orleans after Katrina. And uh, there's some bitter truths get told in there, you know. That's the thing. Hollywood no longer can afford to tell you bitter truths. Hollywood is now full-time in the business of telling you reassuring lies. Because that's the only kind of movie that's going to make back two hundred million dollars worldwide. You know. If you've seen X Men First Class. Okay, it's enough with X Men. <laughs> Alrighty. That was a horrible movie. Come no, on. it wasn't. It wasn't horrible. No. It just wasn't great. That's okay. But the other X Men were so cool. And then that was. I'm not sure the other ones were all that great either. Wait, First speaking, one was- speaking of television, though. Um, I, I just want to mention this real quick. I know, Dome, you mentioned it once before. The series Lost Girl, which is actually a Canadian series that's been picked up by Sippy. Oh, I don't know it. Tell me more. Um, It's about fairies, and it's not that lame. And it's got some nice. really hot girls in it. <laughs> nice. That's pretty much all you need to know, I think. I think um, the, main, the main character is a succubus. Yeah, and she's really hot. <laughs> Man. And it's criticism proof. You know, you say anything against fairies, it's a hate crime. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the Tinkerbell defense. Yeah, yeah, we're almost that politically correct up here. You know. We're almost that politically correct everywhere, but it's a—it's uh, the way it goes now. Yeah, yeah, it's the way it goes. So, well, yeah. So, uh, how was the David Crosby concert? Oh man, uh, the, the 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 concert he's speaking of took place in New Bedford, Massachusetts, on the twenty fourth of May, just a few days before the anniversary of Jeannie's passing, and uh, it was attended by uh, Jeannie's entire family and half of my family, and I just I I spent better than half the concert in tears, you know, uh, the, the, it was just amazing. They played for just a hair under three hours, never ran out of hits. Uh, they wow. at, at one point they played David's gorgeous song "Deja Vu," you know the "We Have All Been Here Before." Yeah. Jeannie always loved that song, man. And this particular night, uh, there, uh, two of the musicians got inspired. There was an impromptu jam session between the keyboard player, who was David's son James Raymond, and the guitarist, who was the legendary Dean Parks of Steely Dan, uh, for instance. Oh. And the, 
got into an extended haunting jam on Deja Vu, uh, stretched the song out to 15 minutes, and then they finished with the, we have all been here before. And Graham leaned over the microphone and said, we'd like to dedicate that song to our dear friend, Jeannie Robinson. With my two-year-old grandchild on my lap, man, I just lost it, and I, I cried like a child, you know. And my grandchild didn't freak out or anything. She just she, she didn't absolutely understand what was going on. I mean, that, that child is an old soul. She really is. I, she, she's, 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 she's my crack cocaine. I am in love with my Marissa Alegria da Silva. She's, uh, she's actually in the other room right now, and I'm going to keep her there because if I were allow, to allow her into this room, this would become the Marissa show. <laughs> she has a tendency to take over any space she inhabits, you know, and for one thing, cover it, spatter it from ceiling to floor with food, you know, <laughs> and for another, fill it full of frolic and games and smiles and giggles. She is the most amazing child. Uh, she was in the room when Jeannie left, and uh, I, I saw Jeannie take her last breath, and I knew it for what it was, and I looked up and caught my daughter's eye. And I saw that she, too, caught it. And she was holding Marissa in her arms. Marissa was then one. And uh, she put Marissa down on Jeannie's chest and said, Give Nana a hug, honey. And Marissa gave her a hug. And then she lifted up on one arm and she waved bye-bye. And oh. how the hell a one... Uh, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. How the hell a one-year-old could possibly make the connection? Nana's a little more quiet than usual. And... and she just learned the bye-bye gesture a couple of days before, and it was in the context of, as we're leaving a place, we all put on our coats, and then we stand there by the door, and we wave like this, and we go, bye-bye, bye-bye, and then we go out the door. And how did she get that something like that had just taken place, you know? I mean, the last year of her life, Jeannie kept looking that child in the eye and establishing Vulcan mind meld with her. I would watch her do it, you know, and see, you know, trying to accomplish some sort of Dharma transmission. And, and uh, I really think she pulled it, pulled it off. I, uh, there's, there's a connection between the two of them that's just unbelievable. Uh, for a while after Jeannie was gone, Marissa would, would demand to be taken to Nana, and we would try and explain, and whatever we said didn't work, and she would burst into tears. And finally, uh, one of her parents got the idea of running up the YouTube video of Jeannie's last dance. The last dance Jeannie ever performed on this earth was done here on Bowen Island at a benefit concert for her uh, to thank everybody. And it's a short but amazing piece. And so they started, that's the, you know, the most extensive piece of video of Jeannie that they had around to show her. So they started showing this to Marissa, one year old, and the kid now can do most of the most of the piece. She's got most of the choreography down. It's just eerie, you know. The the the, the resemblance is uncanny, wow. you know. I mean, for one thing, Jeannie, toward the end of her life, after a lifetime of dance abusing her knees, she had reached a point where she was starting to get bow-legged, and we, we were thinking seriously about knee replacement surgery. And Marissa, she's wearing a diaper. She's just got to be bow-legged. So the, you know, <laughs> the resemblance is really uncanny as she walks. <laughs> she just makes me think of a miniature version of Jeannie. More, more than once... In her final weeks, Jeannie would turn to me quietly when nobody else was around and say, don't let on, but I, I, I suspect that child might, just might be the Maitreya Buddha. See, the, when you hear Buddhists talking about the Buddha, they're talking about number seven in a series of Buddhas. And the way the story goes, there's supposed to be a total of eight. There's only one more Buddha left to go, and that's the, the, the Maitreya Buddha. And the Maitreya Buddha will be the first female Buddha. 
And according to the Buddhist legend, when the Maitreya Buddha shows up, then everybody gets straightened. Everyone gets enlightened. They say even even the stones and the and the trees will become enlightened. And and I tell you, I look at that child every day, and I I have absolutely no reason to believe she's not the Maitreya Buddha. You know, I don't say she is. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me in the least. She is in many ways wise beyond her years. Oh, oh she's just amazing. She's just amazing. Uh, Jeannie uh, had to have two funerals because all, most of most her friends are on this coast, but all her family's on the other coast. And they all, God damn it, they want to have some place to go and you know, scatter the ashes and some place they could go and, and be by the graveside and, and think. And so, okay, we ended up having two different services, one here and one in Provincetown, which is sort of the seat of Jeannie's family. Jeannie's mother grew up in Provincetown, and Jeannie spent most of her childhood and adolescence in Provincetown, loved the place. It was kind of the, the source of her spiritual power, you know. So we had a wonderful little funeral in Provincetown Cemetery. It's a gorgeous place, you know, on a, a high on a hill. And five generations of Portuguese fishermen and their families have been laid to rest here. You know, you can see the ocean from here and you can see the monument in the distance, the, the Provincetown Monument, and uh, it was called So Many Sailors Home. And everybody says the words and everybody sings the, the right songs and everybody does the right chants and we all say whatever has to be said. And then everybody buggers off to go back to the, uh, you know, to the reception where we're all going to have brunch and then get drunk all day and tell genie stories. And left standing by the graveside is just uh, me and my daughter with our arms around each other and her husband, her own, with, with Marissa in his arms. And suddenly it comes to me that I'm off duty now, you know. I've been kind of on duty ever since Jeannie left. I've had diff responsibilities to discharge, and I've had duties to perform, and I've had shows to put on, you know. And this was the second of my, and now all my responsibilities are over, and now if I, if I want to collapse, I can. And I suddenly realize I want to collapse. I'm, you know, I, I look out at the ocean, and I hallucinate this tidal wave, you know, I, I see this storm surge coming for me, like Katrina coming for the lower ninth ward, you know, and it's, a, it's completely imaginary, but it's it's a, it's a wave of of despair and bleakness and blackness, and I just know it's coming, and it's going to knock me under, it's going to drive me to the bottom, it's going to capsize me and founder me, and I'm fucked. And just then, little Marissa, who until now has been good as gold, hasn't made a peep, hasn't made a sound. Suddenly she throws a fit. Her father can't hold her in his arms. She, he's got to put her down. She comes running over and she looks up and she says, clear as a bell, grandpa, 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 three times. She has never said the word grandpa before and holds up her arms and demands to be picked up. And I, I look at my daughter and my daughter looks at me and we both say, Jeannie did this. And I, I pick up the kid and the wave crashes down over my head, and I hold on to my little life jacket, man, and I, I bob back up to the surface, you know, and take a deep breath, and I walk ashore onto the sands of serenity, and I headed off to the reception with everybody else and had a great day. And that, that little child has kept my head above water since, you know. There, the, the times when I wonder what the hell I'm getting out of bed for in the morning, I just play these little recordings I have now of her either giggling or bursting into tears or babbling away and... Yeah, that's what it's all about. That's what Jeannie left for us, you know? Awesome. That's amazing. Uh, she's an amazing child. I, every grandparent feels exactly the same way I do. I'm just the one that's right. 
It's not their fault. I understand why they feel that way. It's just, you know. They can't help feeling that way, and we're just going to have to let them do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wonder at what point she'll turn it into an ordinary human being with, who has, you know, like qualities you can conceivably dislike. I, so far, I love everything about her, you know? Spider, the one thing that you've just begun to figure out is there's no such thing as an ordinary human being. Isn't that the damn truth? Isn't that the damn truth? There are no spear carriers, man. You know, nobody's an extra. That's it. That's it. So my next question for you, when do we put the pen back onto the paper? That's what I'd like to know, brother. I'm trying, I'm trying to work it out right now. I've been breaking my chops for the last, I don't know how long, at least six months, trying to get my, my trying to get my novel down off the blocks and, and, you know, get it, get it running again. And man, it's hard. I, I, I need a whole new system. I need to rebuild my thing. I need a whole new motivational structure. I, I, for, for the longest time, it puzzled me that I am the laziest man that I know. And yet <laughs> there's a book on the shelf for every year I've been in the business, you know, and how could that possibly be? How could someone as bone lazy as me keep producing so much? And it suddenly come to me uh, a little too late that what I was doing was trying to keep, trying to stay interesting to my wife. That if I if I I found that if I Jeannie and I kept different schedules. She would she would fall over at about oh eleven o'clock or midnight, and I would go out to my office and write until seven or eight in the morning. And uh, then I I'd, I'd crash, and we'd get up and share the early evening together. And I speedily learned in the early days of our marriage that if I left five or ten pages of copy on the table for Jeannie to read over her breakfast, we had a very pleasant night that night. Let me, let me just put it that way. That <laughs> Jeannie, wink, she wink. had this peculiarity. She actually got hot reading my reading, reading my writing. <laughs> similarly, I would watch her choreographing, you know. And in both cases, to a civilian, it would have like we're, would have looked like we're doing nothing at all, you know. When I'm writing, I'm staring at the space until and beads of blood are forming on my forehead. And when Gina's choreographing, she'd be sitting there with earphones on, listening to music, staring at the space, and making an imaginary stage come alive in her mind's eye. And either of us watching the other do that, watching the other raise, you know, raise up their as aspect, take on their aspect, and raise up their attribute, uh, it just turned us on, you know. It, it was it, it, it was a holy thing to watch, and it stunned us both so much that that's how we stayed interesting for each other as we kept creating. And now uh, that motivation is gone. You know, I, I can get a date with me a, a lot easier than the right ten pages of copy for Christ's sake. Children, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll throw me a charity one every anytime. You know. <laughs> Plus the simple fact that. For 35 years, without significant exception, everything I've written has been between the hours of midnight and 7 or 8 a.m. In pitch darkness, totally detached from the world, because during those hours, no one ever came to the door. The phone never rang. There was nothing on TV. My favorite distraction was snoring back in the house in the bedroom. You know, and, and I was surrounded by... Dozens and dozens of dreaming people whose whose dreams I could vampirically steal, you know, telepathically and put in my stories, and that that worked fine for thirty five years. But I can't do that no more. I, without a genie here to enable me to to make my life possible, 
I gotta be up in the daytime because that's when the stores are open and that's when the post office is open and that's when the gas station is open and that's when the ferry runs that will take you to the mainland for your doctor's appointment. You know, it's just not possible to stay up all night and live unless you've got someone else who's willing to do all the shopping and do all the cleaning and do all the recycling and do all the, you know, and I, I'm still terminally confused. I haven't figured out when do I do my writing. When, when is the time of day when I can do that? I don't really know. It seems from the time I get up until the time I go to sleep, I'm busy doing stuff. I always knew my wife was doing the work of three people for me. I didn't begin to suspect the truth. She was doing the work of at least six people. Six people willing to work harder than I am, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so far, it seems like uh, 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 just keeping the household running, uh, un unless and until my daughter and son-in-law show up with Marissa. That helps them. Then a, a lot of the, the, the pressure gets taken off me, and I got more discretionary hours where I can try to write. But when I'm by myself, I just I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't got a system. I don't. I, I you know. Used to be, I just when it got to be a certain hour, and I went out to my office. It was like Jeannie, you know, she was so used to meditating that before she quite got her ass on the cushion, she was already entering meditative state of mind. That her blood pressure was dropping and her pulse was slowing. You know, from the from the ritual. I don't have a new set of rituals yet for writing in the daytime, and you I'm not sure I can do it. Oh. Not having a bright light and a telephone that's liable to go off at any minute with some fucking telemarketer who wants to sell me some crap, you know? I or know. Some fellow artist with an interesting proposition, you know? Oh, no. Damn podcasters. Yeah. I know. What's wrong with us? Well, here on Bowen Island, there's a guy named Matt, and Matt Maxwell is in the process of putting together a sort of modern rock folk opera of his own devising. It's absolutely wonderful and he's dragooning everybody on Bowen Island who can carry a tone or play an instrument to swing up out of jungle and come join him for the session and everybody's got a track and I ended up getting sucked into it and I had such a goddamn good time that it almost you know makes me not mind the fact that it ended up costing about three working days really you know, with all the preparation and then the winding down but it was so much goddamn fun. What was I going to do? And it's going to be a terrific project. He's, uh, he's, he's working on this monster six-volume thing called Dream Singer. And it just, it just sounds like a total pisser. Well, you, you, you know, the parameters have changed. And, you know, a great, great force has been taken away. Yeah, absolutely. But, my my but, muse is gone. You know, but nothing, nature abhors a vacuum. And we know that. We know yeah. that. Yeah. Still, I, you know, I find it difficult to imagine. I, I assume that since I'm not dead yet, and my father is still going strong at 89, so I might have another 30 years of this crap to get through, <laughs> I assume that at some point uh, celibacy will end, and I will once again get involved in some, in some sort of relationship with some sort of woman. I do not envy the poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, ladies? He's available. <laughs> I feel sorry for 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 the poor woman who tries to step into genie shoes, or you know, if that, if such a thing is even conceivable, because it isn't. That's, That's an inconceivable thing. notion, right there, and we all know that. We all know that. Spider, well, I cannot wait for you to put pen to paper again. I I'm really can't. I sit there, I try, but it's it's 
It's as though I opened up my mouth and went to sing a Beatles song, and instead out came some out-of-key croaking gibberish. You know, it's, it's that weird. All my life I've been able to just reach for the words, and they would generally come. Sometimes I would have trouble reaching for the story. Uh, the, but it, once I knew what happens next, I could always put that into words. And that's, that's the trouble I'm having now. Is I'm, I, I, I seem to be clumsy in my ability to make the words form into sentences that arrange themselves in coherent paragraphs that get me anywhere. You know, I've, I've kind of forgotten how to do this. I'm, I'm basically stupefied. I read somewhere that grief can cost you up to 25 IQ points. And I believe it, honest to God. I felt like stunned, you know, for for the last year or so. I felt like I took a, a sledgehammer to the forehead. That I've been watching a lot of daytime TV and enjoying. Oh it. gosh, don't do that! Oh my <laughs> God! Oh yeah. no, no! Well, I, that I, will I, lower your IQ. That's <laughs> what. That's what's killing the IQ right there. Well, I tried to read only good stuff, and you know, and and that that meant rereading a lot of good stuff, and that was good. But but they're just you know. There are times when you, you, your cataracts are just too lousy for you to feel like reading, and then you put on whatever's on the TV, and that, that's how I got into strongly into downloading television, so I'd have other things than daytime TV to watch. I have a spoiler for you. He's never the father. Although the queen is gone now, so... All, all other daytime TV doesn't really matter. I heard that. I heard tell that they're about to do away with all my children and General Hospital and all of them. That they're all on the way out. That they're about to become history. And there, shortly within view, is the day when there will not be a single daytime soap opera. Wow! And, but hey, we'll uh, always have Oprah. Oh wait, no, nope. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> And I, I read recently somewhere she's, she's apologized for the fact that her new network has kind of stiffed. Uh, she said, well, I was, I was putting all my attention on closing out my show, and I hadn't really noticed that my new project was going nowhere. But <laughs> don't worry, I plan to pay some attention to it real soon now. Oops, yikes. And I can't tell you the vast feeling of indifference that rolled over me. <laughs> 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 I, I got nothing against Oprah. I don't mean to knock Oprah. You know, Oprah does what she does, and she sells what she sells, and she does it damn well. It's hardly ever been done with, with this, half as much class as she does. And, uh, you know, more power to her, you know, she, as long as she's keeping her audience happy. You know, I, I've reached more, more and more I'm beginning to agree with that, uh, that statement of Suzuki Roshi's, that people with opinions just go around bothering one another. <laughs> You know, man, if folks are enjoying Glenn Beck, you know, if they, they find him funny, who am I to argue? You know, what the hell? I think some people find him funny in different ways. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. Uh, some people find him very you know, fascinating. God help us. But then, you know, there's, there's no accounting for taste. There are people who like Rush Limbaugh. How? Uh, Why? Uh, <laughs> for what? You know? Like funny ha-ha, funny uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> there, are, there are times when I do believe the whole parallel universe and I may have slipped into a stream, but yeah, yeah, gosh, it's, it gets, you know, it never gets more coherent. It just gets stranger and stranger, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. I, I you know, I keep watching the, the, the land of my birth uh, regressing, you know, 
Uh, I, I watched it make a lot of strides from the 50s, move forward, and it seems to be backpedaling frantically. Uh, you know, and we're, we're, you know, we seem to be returning to the same sort of political climate that existed when I was about five, six years old. And all around me were robot Nazis, you know, <laughs> who, who had no idea they were robot Nazis. Actually, and, some of them did, and that was the scary part. Yeah, I mean, here's here's why I live in Canada, gang. Recently, we had the, the the big election here, you know, and I went down to vote, and I had this little piece of paper I had received from the registrar of voters saying I was registered and which polling place to go to and what, you know, what booth to report to and all that stuff. But I just asked out of curiosity, you know, what would happen if you didn't have the piece of paper? What what would you have to do to identify yourself satisfactorily as a Canadian to be allowed to vote? What would what would constitute proof of citizenship for the purpose of voting? And you know what the answer is? Nothing. You can come in there with no documents whatsoever and get anybody standing around the room to say, Oh yeah, I know him, he's a Canadian, and you're in. And I, 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 this was exactly at the time when people were refusing to accept Obama's written birth certificate birth as sufficient certificate. proof of citizenship. And up here, all you need is one guy to say, "Yeah, I know him. He's cool." I, you know, that's 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 <laughs> the countries. You know, I, America. There was a great glorious while there when I lived there when it didn't have a stick up its ass, but it's, it's, it's that stick's being reinserted at a rapid really? rate. Yeah how, yeah. how long ago was that? I mean, <laughs> did the dinosaurs look like Jurassic Park? I mean, <laughs> there was a brief shining moment when, for instance, there you know there there were amnesties for all the draft dodgers, and they really meant it. They let people go home if they wanted to. That was pretty cool. You know, America's done some really classy stuff in my lifetime. It's just uh, not lately. And uh, <laughs> you know, lately, it does things like cheating on its plea bargain with Mark Emery. I don't know if you all heard that story. Uh, there's this guy, well, if you Google him up, you'll probably find the name Prince of Pot associated with Mark Emery. Uh, ah. Mark did have a slightly self-aggrandizing side, and he liked to go for the publicity. Uh, Mark wanted to see marijuana legalized, and one of the ways he went about it was he sold marijuana seeds through the mail to anybody who wanted them. And I mean fine, high-quality, B.C. buds, superior gene genetic seeds that grow the world's finest boo and he would sell it to anybody, anywhere, and that's legal in this country. Um, but Mark, well, he's a little flamboyant. Uh, the head of the DEA to give a lecture, uh, like a, a speech at a, at a $100 a plate dinner here in Vancouver. And Mark and his friends took some of the profits they'd made from selling marijuana seeds through the mail, some that they hadn't already spent on legalizing marijuana, and they bought $100 plate seats and took a table right near the dais at this function. Oh, and when Lord. The guy got a, every time he opened his mouth, they would say, bullshit, that's a lie, that's not the <laughs> truth. The facts are, and they just humiliated the poor sod. I mean, you know, it interrupted him so badly, he had to leave the dais. And Mark should have expected what happened, but I, I have to admit it shocked even me. Basically, a DEA squad came to Canada and kidnapped Mark from Canadian soil, with the tacit cooperation of the RCMP and our gutless, knotless government, they spirited him away back to America, where they placed him on trial for committing, in Canada, acts which would have been an offense if he had been in America at the time. What? Yeah. And Mark looked for his government to bail him out, nuh-uh, got nowhere. 
They had to, they busted two of his assistants with him, both of whom require medical marijuana to live. And so if they went to jail and did any time at all, it was a death sentence. So Mark had no negotiating room. He accepted a plea bargain in which he agreed to plead guilty and he agreed to do five years. And the deal was after he had served a token six months or a year in America, he would then be allowed to transfer back to some Canadian prison. So it would be possible for his family to visit him. Uh, well, big surprise, they fucked him. Uh, he's not, he's not, he's going to do all of his time in Supermax in America. And his family will be lucky if they see him on, you know, alternate Christmases. And, you know, they just shafted the guy every step the way. It's like, you know, imagine, say you're a beer distributor and you sell beer through the mail to anybody who orders beer. And one day some guys come in the door in dark suits and swarthy skin. And they say, we are from Yemen and you sold some of your beer to people in Yemen. And it's against the law for people in Yemen to buy beer. And selling beer to people in Yemen is a crime. And so we're going to take you back to Yemen now and behead you for committing in America acts which are legal but would, would have been illegal if you'd been in our country at the time. Uh, you know, and imagine that your government makes no objection and hands you over peacefully. But that's basically Mark Emery's situation. And I, I, I know the guy. He's like a holy goof. He really is. He's, you know, John Lennon would have just loved him. Abby Hoffman would have been right in there with him, man. And he's doing hard time in, a, in, a, in, a, in an American maximum security joint uh, for basically for selling seeds. And that's, that's what America's turned into. You know, there's a, there's a Leon Russell song that I've always loved. Uh, I, I've, I think it's called A V I Sing. And the chorus is, she uses beauty like a knife. She cuts me and even more, she changes right before my eyes into something ugly and sore. And you know, Leon and I have always felt the same way about America. You know, it's heart-stopping beauty, and then it will suddenly do something so repulsive. You know? Yeah, well. It's... It just makes me clench my ass. I, I'll never stop being an American. And my the hairs will always stand up on the back of my neck when they play the Star Spangled Banner. And, you know, I, what I still keep telling people is that America may fall short of its ideals, but, man, it has the most amazing set of ideals any nation ever failed to live up to, you know? <laughs> You've got to give them that much. we got, you know, we got some ideals that we, we haven't ever really kind of been able to hang on to for long, but that, that we even aspire to them is remarkable. You know, we care more about individual freedom. We care more about the individual than any other system I've ever run into. And I gotta love that because it it allowed me to escape, you know, the regimentation and squirt through the cracks. And you know, there, a, a librarian was allowed to turn me on to science fiction. Man, there's there's been cultures where that librarian would have got shot for that shit. Like, absolutely, like, absolutely. Or no, not at all. Not even me, especially. <laughs> Spider, we could do this for like hours, days. I, I could sit here and we could, I, 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 I you know, I, I'd just like to fly up tonight and, and talk for hours huh? in, lieu, in lieu of that. <laughs> in, lieu of, <laughs> in lieu of that, actually, uh, I'd like to invite you back on here anytime your little heart desires to sit and talk about whatever the hell it is you want to. All righty, all righty. I'll I, I tell you what, I'll, I'll leave you with a, a set of uh, song lyrics uh, that I never came up with a tune for. Awesome. Uh, I, I wrote this for Jeannie, and I never did come up with a tune, and it's kind of too late now. But uh, the, I like the lyrics. It's called, I Ain't Going Anywhere. 
My teacher, Robert Heinlein, said if people never died, their marriages could never last, no matter how they tried. The wisest of his characters believed this, Lazarus Long. Well, Robert, you and Lazarus were wrong, because I ain't going anywhere, not even if I die. No, I'm not going anywhere. I'm never going to say goodbye. There's no place else I feel the need to see. There's nothing else I might have missed. You're what I always would have wanted if I had known it could exist. The first third of a century we now have been a pair. I hope we get another third or more that we can share. But if you died tomorrow and I got eternal life, I'd spend it writing songs about my wife. See, I ain't going anywhere. Not even if you die. Oh, you're not going anywhere. You're not ever going to say goodbye. There's no one else that I desire to touch. There's no one else I wish I'd kissed. You're the only girl I dream about. There's no temptation to resist. You taught me of beginner's mind. I meet you every day. And every time I fall in love, I will not go away. It isn't getting easier enduring human life. But hey, at least I've got the perfect wife. So I ain't going anywhere. Not even if I die. No, I'm not going anywhere. I'm never going to say goodbye. There's no place else I feel the need to see. There's nothing better I have missed. You're all I ever could have dreamed of. If I had dreamt, you could exist. That's all I got to say. I'm the luckiest son of a bitch I ever met or heard of to this day. You know, I had for 35 years what I have dear friends haven't had 35 minutes of in their whole lives, you know. I feel like the normal music is not going to cut it tonight. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what to play. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. You know what? You know what? Um, <laughs> oh. Oh, okay, wait, wait, wait. I'll, I got it. There we go. Wow. Yeah, Brian, read over that. Come on, yes. A somber and respectful well, coming up calendar. There we go. <laughs> well, <clears throat> next week. It's a whole different feel. <laughs> it is a whole different feel. Okay, hold on. <sighs> next week, we cry havoc and let slip Anthony Dell Call and Connor McCreary with their hit comic series, Kill Shakespeare. Then on July 16th, the extraordinary Matt Durson and the League of Ordinary Gentlemen podcast. July 23rd, Ted Woods. You met him at the Boston Comic Con. Now read his latest anthology fiction. July 30th, we get super knocked up with filmmaker Jeff Burns and crew. And on August 6th, Everett Soars takes us on a grand adventure with the Sky Pirates of Valandor. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic-Con and of Comic Art House, your one and only source for original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Who is tonight's uh, music by? Jake Shimabaruku. Jake Shimabuku. Come on. Pick up his CD somewhere on the internet. His CD <laughs> is called Gently Weeps. And you'll find a lot of YouTube videos of him too. They're, it's astonishing to watch him. He's one. He's an interesting guy to watch. Absolutely. Jake Shimabukuro. S S H I M A B U K U R O. And if anybody didn't get that, too bad. Well, <laughs> if anyone didn't get that, we'll be posting it in our show notes tonight, Dylan, won't we? There you go. It says yes, we will. If you want to 
was from the Alston Brighton Bunker, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, and Grammar Girl Zombrarian. Thanks for all you guys do. From the Four Color Vault of Comics, great thanks to Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Spider. And from, out and from Spider. Outpost Gallifrey, hey. our gaming editor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, X. Yo. Spider, last year, thank you for turning me on to Heinlein. He's not a bad writer, but uh, he's no Spider Robinson. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah me, me and that John Lennon guy, too. We're like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's, it's been a gas, folks. This is the dome saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy is increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. I'm sour.